All right, everyone. Welcome to the second official episode of the Docs Board Podcast. I will be um, introducing each of our members. In today's podcast, Derek Brown will be the moderator. So um, for the listeners, how we're going to do it is every other podcast is going to cycle between me and another one of our members, or even depending on on who we have on, maybe even a guest star can be the moderator. So I'm going to start off with myself. My name is Dr. Clark. For those who don't know, I am the, I would say, face slash leader of this great organization. Um, I am the founder of it. And thank you all for listening. All righty. I'm the moderator today. My name is Derek Brown, but uh, they call me the hip hop historian here. Uh, I do topics about, you know, hip hop. And that is my deal here. Hello, everyone. My name is Vanessa Shank. I am an ambassador for Dr. Clark's interns. My job in the group is mainly to work on a lot of dance content. I try to find a lot of pieces in performing arts. And that is my main job in the um, group. All right. So, Vanessa, I, I know that you expressed interest in going first. So let's see what you have here. Okay. My topic for today is should dance be added to the Olympics? It's, so there's always been an argument if dance is a sport or not. To me, I believe dance is a sport. It's an ex- expressive arts, artistic sport, and it requires a lot of training, skill, and stamina. Dance focuses on a lot of upper body and lower body strength, arguably equal to or even more than gymnastics, depending on the dance genre. Um, even with um, gymnastics, if gymnastics is allowed, dance should be, should be allowed too. Dance involves a lot of training, balance, creativity, skill, and flexibility. And that's why I feel like it should be included into the Olympics. What do you guys think? So the first question I have to ask, sort of ask myself is, um, are there any particular sports that are sort of different or unorthodox compared as far as physical, physicality goals, or just anything that seems different from the other sports in the Olympics? Um, do you want me to name a few of them? Yes. Okay, so we have swimming. We have figure skating. We have um, gymnastics. Those are names. Just a few. Um, would you like me to name any more? Or uh, can, can I add in one that is extremely uh, unorthodox in terms of yes, physicality? Please. Archery. You got a point there. In, in terms, terms of pure physicality, archery mm-hmm. is allowed at the Olympics. So, mm-hmm. so okay, but the reason why. I asked that question is because I was trying to figure out what are reasons why they wouldn't allow dance. And the only reason I could think of is the, you know, the difference between dance compared to other, you know, forms of forms of uh, sport in the Olympics. Me thinking about that, I would try to ask myself what terms of physicality and in terms of like how they would judge or score it. Is it really that different from some of the other ones, particularly like figure figure skating? Because figure skating can evolve some similar dance-like movement. You know what I mean? Right. So if I'm evaluating it that way, I couldn't say that dance couldn't be put in the Olympics. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what is your opinion, Dr. Clark? Um, well, my opinion is um, the Olympics should be anything within the physical realm uh, and even technically non-physical because sports and sports mentality <laughs> and, and your mental fortitude is a big aspect of whatever sports you're playing as well. But I think anything within the physical realm that is competitive by nature should be allowed within the Olympics. Like for even like I even had this opinion. Bowling should, I personally think, should be allowed in, in the Olympics just because of because you have to be pretty at least moderately in shape in order for you to be throwing the bowling balls around <laughs> for a certain length of time and the amount of accuracy that you have to have and the amount of damage that that can do to your fingers o- over time and it's being a competitive sport. I think bowling should be allowed in. So yes, I think dance, especially the different types of dances should be allowed at the Olympics, but here's the problem. <laughs> There's one problem that I see. Because of how multicultural and multifaceted dance is, what type of judges would we have? Yes. What type uh, what what 
type of dance competitions what we have. For example, let's say hip hop style dances, break dances, uh, uh, crumping, all these mm-hmm. different types of modern style hip hop dances. As we know, uh, and, and even non black, even non hip hop black style dances are mm-hmm. dances of people of color. You know, there's a certain level of racism toward people of color, and there are certain dance styles that they have essentially created. But it's funny how a lot of people, especially around the world, in European and Asian countries, they will emulate our dance styles. But what, what I'm saying is that because of that, how is it going to be judged fairly without any type of bias towards one particular culture into one particular yes. uh, type of dance? And that's kind of where that really uh, meets a, a head at. So, what, Very good observation. So, uh, what is your opinion on that, Vanessa? Okay, like, even with what you just said, I actually um, did some research, and it came across like there was, like, a lot of arguments saying that some people argue that dance can't be judged because, because can't be judged in the Olympics because of, the because of like, the broadness of dance. So, so many categories, so many different styles, so many different genres. How would you be able to judge that in the Olympics? And what I was saying was, however, Olympics doesn't have to include all styles of dance. It doesn't have to include all styles. It could include just the main ones that's more physical and and involves more um, technique or training like um, ballet, ballroom, classical. It can involve things like that. It doesn't have to involve the the huge broadness of like jazz or hip hop. It doesn't have to involve but, that. But here's an issue with that. That creates conflict of interest, especially among, because you know, African Americans. Even though, um, I think the 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 head of one of the most prestigious dance schools right now is a young black woman, but uh, in America. But if I'm correct about my information, you did a post on this last year. Uh, but uh, Vanessa, what what I'm saying is that creates a form of bias as well, because hey. Why would you put in dance? Because most of the dance styles that you named, Blacks and Hispanics especially, don't really participate in <laughs> as much or don't have the ability because of certain um, societal boundaries that were put on us. We don't have the ability to participate in those dances as well as, um, let's say, someone of a more ivory history or complexion. Basically, what I'm saying is that that would make it less inclusive and that would make it biased in a way because if, if that's the case then why should you be able to pick and choose what type of dance that you get to, to use when any other dance styles can be just as prevalent or just as important to other peoples and other cultures i kind of wanted to add a little bit to what you said because i pretty much agree with what you're saying diamante the other thing you know the other aspect of it is that i think that some dances or parts of dance that are involved in certain culture evolve, you know, they involve certain physical attributes that you don't see in other cultures. So if you were to take, let's say, the more technical dances, it would have to be from a broad a range of cultures. And then again, there are certain, even when the difficulty level of all of them it's high. It still involves certain movements that uniquely can be, you know, difficult to pull off. And you can say that about a lot of different dances and, like I said, a lot of different cultures. But when you keep that in mind, when you have these judges, the kind of committee you would have to have is you would have to have a very, if you wanted to accurately judge, you would have to have a pretty large committee of dance judges. If you wanted to evaluate and judge that kind of thing, because since it's an art form, it's already somewhat subjective in itself. And if something is culturally, you know, if it's subjective, then culturally you're going to have some cultural bias, whether it whether, you know, you think it involves racism or not. And that cultural bias ultimately can determine how these judges evaluate it. So, for example, if you had a majority African committee of dancers and there were more so European dance and they did ballroom dance, for example, although ballroom dance isn't very, very technical, 
if you play a ballroom dance and you had some African percussion dance um, that maybe was a little bit more fast paced or something like that, I would think that they may be more inclined to identify or choose that African, you know, those African dances. So I just see like, I just see the potential for cultural, I just see the potential for cultural bias to be like a hindrance for that kind of committee, no matter how few or how many you add and no matter how many people to the committees or to the amount, how many amount of judges you add. I see what you're saying with the, um, it would be like a lot of cultural bias because there will be so many debates on what forms of dance should be included and what form of dance should be excluded. And that would bring like a lot of controversy, a lot of um, disagreements upon what dances should be included in the Olympics. I still feel like dance has so much potential and it would be something great to bring towards the Olympics, but I can see how much of a debate that would be as well. But um, even going back to what Diamante said, he was saying that a lot of a lot of people may not be able, a lot of uh, more more uh, racial people would not be able to may not be able to participate in some of these things because they haven't got that much training as you know like ballet or ballroom or things of that nature. They may not be able to be able to get the training for that. But I think that can also be debated because there are a lot of people out there that can actually get that kind of formal training. So I just think it's all it's all so it's so unevenly leveled and it's kind of like to say who can say it, who cannot say. But what do you think? It's kind of it's just so can 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 you please what was the exact question? I'm just trying to say like it's it's so it's just so broad that it's kind of like who can say what forms of dance should be included? Who cannot say what forms of dance should be included? So it's um, well, uh, just to give my quick opinion on it. Well, that's why I said it. That's why we need a worldwide committee. I'll give you a, an example. Um, the Wright brothers, if you know who who they are, not not the Wright brothers. Um, know what their name is now, but I'll just speak it alone. James Brown. James Brown and Michael Jackson and Jeffrey Bennett of Shamalar, they were one of the biggest headliners for dancing or black dancing in popular culture, in, in the music medium in particular, especially during their era from the 60s all the way up to the 90s or 2000s, technically, if you include Michael Jackson and Jeffrey Bennett. The problem is if you go to YouTube or the internet, just type in the robots hip-hop style dances the moonwalk if you go around the world you will find people of all races emulating those dance styles you'll find people music especially in the um j-pop and k-pop scene the, the whole thing with j-pop and k-pop is is korean or japanese pop music a lot of their music videos they use uh black-oriented choreography <laughs> within their music videos. Uh, what's the guy who came up with the, that is considered to be the most viewed song of all time on YouTube, Psy. His entire song and some of the dance moves that he was doing, even though they were crazy and funny, were black created dance moves. So what, what I'm saying was, I, what I, I didn't mean that blacks as a whole or people of color as a whole don't don't have access to training. But what I'm saying is that why should they have to train in a particular style if their style is just as prevalent and their style is being used by more people around the world? Well, I see that from what Diamante just said, it would be interesting to have dance in the Olympics, but because we would need a lot of we would need like a lot of judges of more, more multicultural, more multicultural, mm-hmm. for that for that to actually work. So that would be my that would be my ending. We would need more um, multicultural judges for that to actually work. But uh, that's it. I'm done. Okay, Doctor Clark. Uh, what is your next topic? Let's see what you have going on here. Well, my next topic is is going to be more on the pop culture side, which 
I'm going over just the different aspects or the different types of shared slash cinematic universes uh, awesome. in fiction or, or, or in films and television in particular. Awesome. Okay, so people wildly consider the original, original cinematic universe to be the universal monsters cinematic universe. This started in 1931 with Dracula, um, which is, you know, the Universal's interpretations of Dracula, the Lagoon Monster, Wolfman, Frankenstein, etc. Those are considered to be the most pertinent or the most used, even across the entire world, of those particular fictional creatures. Then the next cinematic universe was the Toho universe, which, you know, started with Godzilla. And it ended in 1975, which, you know, that's the creation of Godzilla. So uh, it started in 1954. Then the next is Alien. We know started in 1979, and, which is connected, or the Alien versus Predatorverse, which started back in 1979, and um, it's still going on now. Now, going to be going on through a little bit forward, now there are three cinematic universes that have um, started. Well, within the past... I would say 11 years, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is the most successful cinematic universe of all time, uh, the DC Extended Universe, which is not as successful, and then there's the Monsters Universe, which is weird because most of these characters are monsters, but uh, which started back during the Godzilla reboot film in 2014, and, and King Kong is connected to it, which, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla is coming out in a few years. And I'm going to go into television after I finish this topic, but with cinematic universes, um, one of the biggest aspects of them and how to make them successful, besides from the movies themselves being quality work or some of the surrounding media, is for you to be able to grow it in a steady pace, you still being able to, like I said, keep up the quality and you being able to make it apparent that you live in one cohesive universe even if it's through multiple mediums like like i said i'll give an example the marvel cinematic universe is the most successful cinematic universe of all time mm -hmm. it, it's what started it uh, as a quote-unquote cinematic universe you can technically consider star wars as that but star wars even though as a media franchise, Star Wars is more successful as, as the MCU, as a media franchise as a whole, it's not as successful when it comes to the movie spectrum to be in the cinematic universe. But the MCU is Marvel. They have now, with Black Panther, they have more than 18 films since 2008 to 2018 that have came out. And there are two more on the way this year, Avengers Infinity War, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Then their television sector really started in 2013 with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter uh, in 2015. And now they have a, new sh a few new shows like um, The Secret Warriors and um, Cloak and Dagger that are coming out soon. And then their streaming side, most more particularly Netflix, started in 2015 as well with Daredevil. And that is going strong as well. And then, technically, if you want to include one of their external streaming uh, shows, it would be Cloak and Dash. One example on how everything is uh, kept together, even though it probably isn't as apparent or, or broad as I would like for it to be, is what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does. Because of logistics, the movies and the streaming shows, uh, the, you know, which are extension television shows, and I've told this to Derek before, are not able to crossover or how characters appear within them as as much as let let's say a smaller universe mm -hmm. like the um universe that um the clerks is based in however aces of shield is that midway point how they have this is going to be spoilers the judas bullet from luke cage appeared in season four of aces of shield there's a character in season four of aces of shield named the patriot who is one of the many, I would say, is the many experiments on trying to replicate the success of the Super Soldier Serum they had with Steve Rogers. During season three, one of the main characters had to go to a bunker that Bruce Banner helped create to spend vacations in when he's on the run. So what I'm saying is that even though they don't cross 
over as, as much as I think they should, they still make an appearance in some way that they are a cinematic universe, and that's what helps them grow. That's what helps cinematic universes as a whole grow. So what is um, your opinion on NRS Derek first? Well, the main thing for me that I love to see in any cinematic universe or in any group of similar, you know, shows, you know, that you can sort of group together is a sense of, well, just any media property, period, is the interconnectedness of it all. In any, any medium of art, I love to see interconnectedness and the little pieces that fit together, you know, to make a beautiful puzzle. And when we talk about, you know, like the MCU in particular, they do a good job at that. They do it. They do it. They do a fairly decent job at it. Um, I mean, like we can see, obviously, with the Civil War, Captain America: Civil War, the Avengers, as well as uh, Infinity Wars coming coming out. So when you think about all of these different properties and how they've been molding these characters throughout all of these movies and bringing them up to that point, that's a lot of logistics in writing, correct? Yes, <laughs> yes, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. To add on to that, I remember hearing from multiple sources that when Infinity War and Avengers 4 was being written, he got all, they got all of the Phase 3 directors, or even some of the Phase 2 directors, uh, whose characters didn't really get, a, well, actually all of them did, but they got all of the Phase 3 directors in one room going on for like a, a week or two for them to all sit down so the Russo brothers, who are directing Avengers 3 and 4, were able to actually create a cohesive narrative that would add and add um, wealth and give depth to all of the characters within <laughs> the MCU that is appearing in Infinity War. So that kind of shows you that there is a lot of planning that goes into that in order for it to make sense. Absolutely. Like, uh, they, yeah, so what you're saying? But yeah, all of that interconnectedness, those logistics and writing, to be able to pull something like that off, to me, is magnificent. And like I said, it says a lot to the kind of production and the amount of budget that goes into these movies. And I don't mean just the amount of money, but the way that money is allocated towards all of these different projects, if that makes sense. All right. So, are, so when you say, um, so are you just talking about Marvel, or are you talking about like DC, Marvel? Are you talking about them all? In terms of what? You said, because because I, I named I named a few of them. So because um, as you know, I don't really have like a lot of experience as far as when it comes to DC comics, DC movies, uh, Marvel. I don't really know a lot about them. But from what I've what? seen, like with Arrowverse, they do like a lot of, you know, like combining different storylines, different um, shows. Like they'll have Flash, Arrow, they'll have Legends of Tomorrow, they'll have Supergirl. They all have all these different universes coming together and it works. And I love seeing that. I love how everything just ties together and it just comes together so wonderfully. Um, in the Arrowverse, it has so it has like so much has so many different things and how they have the characters tie in with the other characters and have the storyline to tie in with the others. To me, it works perfectly. But continue on. All right. Um, okay. Well, I guess you all have said what you want to say about this, but you are actually, uh, but you've actually watched the DCEU, the DC Extended Universe, or you're almost caught up with it. You you watched every film of the Wonder Woman, so right. you you have watched almost every film in the DC extended universe. I think Derek has too, except just as we. But um, what I'm saying is they work because of that. But now I'm going to transition to the television side, which is you named the Arrowverse, which is a television oriented cinematic universe. But since you already covered that, I'm going to go to other ones. Um, now, television cinematic universes are, I wouldn't say as prevalent, but they are more subtle, and that kind of makes them more prevalent through extension of that. 
So I'll give you an example. The Hooniverse, which is the Doctor Who universe, which has had over the past, since 1963, which has had, I think, over like five different shows. And then even within the shows, there are uh, movies and, and certain movies that are based on different uh, timelines and then video games and all these different things surrounding Doctor Who, which, you know, Doctor Who, especially in terms of British television, is one is probably the most prominent show in terms of popularity and what it means for that side of the world. Then you would have the Hanna-Barbera animated universe, which is still going on now. The Hanna-Barbera universe, whew, it's bigger than most people think it is because the Hanna-Barbera universe, it includes everything from, let me get the exact list, from Yogi Bear, Huckleberry, Quick Draw McGraw, Snugglepuss, Scooby-Doo, which is the most prominent of uh, Hanna-Barbera, and that's anything uh, Scooby-Doo oriented as well. The Jetsons. Uh, the Jetsons, the Jetsons, the Flintstones, Hong Kong, Kong Fu, we, um, Topcat, <laughs> Adam Ant, Secret Skull, which uh, had a small reboot show in Dexter's Lab, uh, Pontimus, Peter, or Peter Pontimus, Magilla Gorilla, Chiche, Turtle, Wally Gator, Hokey Wolf, Snugglepuss, John McGraw, Huckleberry Hound, Ayo Boohoo, and I already said, um, <laughs> <laughs> Yogi Bear. But the Hanna Barbera franchise and cinematic universe, or not cinematic television based universe, is still going on now. It, with uh, Especially with the Scooby Doo shows. That is still going on. And it's been going on since 1957 with the Raw Ready show. Uh, and matter of fact, the, la the last Scooby Doo show, I think it was Mission Incorporated, literally had an entire episode dedicated to the different forgotten. Hanna Barbera characters teaming up with the mystery uh, gang, uh, or yeah, with the mystery gang. So then, probably the most pertinent one to me, uh, as a whole, or two pertinent ones, was the Marvel animated universe, which is not really well known, or, or most people don't interpret it to be a Marvel animated universe. It technically started with X Men the animated series or Spider Man the animated series back in, in the nineties. And it went on until I think Avengers United we stand. Uh, that universe, even though a lot of people don't consider it a television-based shared universe, it is because even though it wasn't as per permanent or pertinent as the universe I'm about to name next, they still had storylines, characters, even references, especially during holiday episodes. I remember I think it was either Fantastic Four or Incredible Hulk, where I think it was the Christmas episode where Rick Jones, who was, you know, he's a friend of Bruce Banner, the hoax. Uh, I think they flew over New York City, and then we had glimpses of all the other cartoon television show Marvel characters from their shows make appearances from the X-Men to Spider-Man to Fantastic... No, what they appeared in the episode to all the other characters. But then the most pertinent animated universe that has been created that was from a comic book IP. And Derek already knows what this is. The DC Animated Universe. Mm -hmm. which, which started back in the early 90s, with, which is considered by many to be the greatest cartoon of all time, the Batman Animated Series. That show and its success created a cackle of animated universes. It created not animated universes. It created a cackle of other animated shows, which I'm going to list here. Batman, the animated series. Yeah, the Zeta Project, Superman, the animated series, the new Batman Adventures, Batman Beyond, Static Shock, which we talked about last podcast, uh, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, and then it has <laughs> movies coming out of it. Batman, Master Phantasm, to the more recent Batman and Harley Quinn. Um, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Yeah, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, which is my favorite non-Bruce um, Wayne Batman film. Even the Teen Titans Go show, which I know Vanessa hates with a passion. Yes. Even, <laughs> even, even that show has had references to the DCAU. The DCAU really showed, and it even showed its contemporary the Marvel Universe, that you can make a full-on universe just through the animation part mm -hmm. of a comic book franchise, which is what they did. Like, like they created an entire universe. 
surrounding that, which is to me very, very, very revolutionary. Because even like we still talk about these shows today, even with the Marvel animated universe, we still we still talk about these shows today as you know, which is considered to be the greatest era for cartoons by many people, especially those who grew up watching the reruns or just grew up watching these shows. But then I would also have to say, which I know I skipped over Star Trek, but that's because if I get into Star Trek, <laughs> that's opened up a completely different kind of worms because of how successful it is. And it really became technically the most pertinent television-based franchise to evolve past the television spectrum, especially now since the movies are more well-known than the show is now. But the next universe, and I know, um, and it sadly isn't really going on too far, is the Nickelodeon Kalexi Kupso universe, which started in 1991 with um, Rugrats. Oh, yes. And it ended in 2013. That includes Rugrats all grown up. Actually, but no. Let me not, not go there. The Billionfold Inc. universe is the universe that I know you all really probably have something to say. Do you, do you know what um, Billionfold Inc. is? I don't. Uh, Billionfold Inc. includes... Rocket Power? Let me... No, that's actually the Disney um, Klaxky Koopso universe. But that includes Fairly Odd Parents, Danny Phantom, oh, Tough yeah, Puppy, yeah. Okay. And Bronson is a beast. And that is still going uh, on now, so, actually. So, so most of them are Dan Schneider projects. Yeah, a Butch Hartman, yes. Butch Hartman, sorry. Yeah, oh, God, that. I can't believe I just I did that. that. <laughs> Ew. Forgive yeah, me. Yeah, so it, it's, it's okay. But, yeah, uh, Butch Hartman, which, you know, like, like I said, that is still um going on. So what do you think, think about that universe? And I'm going to name one um, final one after y'all finish. I know that Butch Hartman recently quit. Well, not quit, but you know, he just he said, uh, you know, I'm done with Nickelodeon. I've, oh my goodness! I've get I've given it enough time, and I couldn't be happier for the guy. And the reason I say that is because he now has like some of the intellectual property. I'm pretty sure he's going like, you know, he's going to go on Kickstarter and he's going to fund his own stuff and. He's talked about the possibility of bringing this stuff to YouTube. And with his specific art style and all he's doing, I think, you know, especially for Nickelodeon, and I know I, me and you have had this conversation before, Diamante, but I know we specifically talked about, um, which we may extend this conversation in another um, episode or podcast, but when it comes to, like, the difference between kids' networks as far as, like, cartoons and even live action goes, the way that they manage the production, it seems like their strategies are different. And with Nickelodeons in particular, it is, you know, the longer you stay, the stricter our formula gets, basically. And so, you know, like the, the longer you stay, the stricter our formula gets, and the more we tighten on the way that your, your production works. Always, you know, so you come in maybe with some slight leeway, maybe a little, maybe a little bit, but I mean, I know that that seems to be the case when you look at a lot of the Nickelodeon projects and how they're the way that they're structured and how they're similar to each other. You can see, especially the way that, you know, the dialogue is worded and the the, the comedic timing of a lot of the different episodes and different stuff like that. You can see it on um, the way Nickelodeon works with these cartoons. And so, you know, when it comes to things like Fairly Odd Parents, I know, you know, they wanted fairly odd parents to age gracefully. Um, and when you when it came to the addition of the new characters, um, I know a lot of people didn't really take to that. So to see it, you know, to see it go in that way, I think it's appropriate. You know, it's a good thing. Um, of course, Danny Phantom is a cl- is a classic to a lot of people. And when it comes to Danny Phantom in particular, you know. That one had a pretty decent ending to it. Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. It was appropriate. And so I think that his ending, you know what I'm saying, good terms, good stuff. So that's kind of what I have to say about, you know, those shows in particular. Okay. 
Well, um, to, to end uh, that, which I'm going to give my overall opinion as I finish, if that's okay. Um, to end that off, um, I would also say this. Almost all of the Nickelodeon original sitcoms are based in one Kohikin universe. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. I, I bet you all didn't I bet you all didn't even know that. You're talking um, about the Nickelodeon it, it, you said all the live action Nickelodeon? Yeah, the original Nickelodeon sitcom. Yeah, the original. I could see that. I could and, see that. And even even the the um Disney original sitcoms were um were basing remember the old team up specials that used to happen um with shows like that so raven the sweet life of what i of the sorry the um sweet life of of cody and zach uh hannah montana i mean zach and cody uh <laughs> hannah montana wizards of waverly place mm-hmm. vanessa do you remember that too i do remember that Okay, but um, right, those universes, a lot of people don't don't understand how pertinent television based universes is. And I name uh, and it's subtle. I name one more. The Simpsons, uh, right. created their own, which you know, The Simpsons, The Critic, King of the Hill, Futurama, Family Guy, American Dad, The Cleveland Show, uh, and and at all, the main show that actually connects all these shows are actually Family Guy. I was uh, family guy. Yeah, with his family, even though Simpsons started off, uh, Family Guy is the one that has constant references to all of these shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially um especially especially uh, American Dad and the now canceled Cleveland show. Because that's McFarland's um that's McFarland's comedic method is refer- is referential comedy. Mm-hmm. But um, so to end it off, um, I think shared universes um are needed for a lot of projects because it helps create a like I said a more cohesive narrative, especially if it has different tones. Uh, I bring up the Marvel Cinematic Universe again. We have a a, a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy, which has which is a joke oriented film, which has. How high to lowbrow humor. Then we have a a um a show like Daredevil where it's an extremely violent and gritty show. Mm-hmm. Then we have a a show like um Agents of Shield, which is a more hollow drama style um show that you will find like something on the CW or maybe on TNT. What makes cinematic universes? so addictive for people to be interested in is because it means that I see it as a way of viewing or viewership currency. Mm-hmm. You're able to invest into these properties to get a bigger payoff with things such as the Avengers films, with things such as Justice League, with things such as the Arrowverse crossover, uh, Crisis on, on Earth X that happened this year, um, with things such as the Defenders. So that's overall um, what I had to say about like, that. This was a very um, loaded and, and informational topic because even most of the u- universes that I named, I still only touch the surface <laughs> of them. So, but yes, okay. But uh, I actually wanted to ask you a question before you finish. Okay, but, okay, okay, go, go, okay. Um, what question I wanted to ask you before you finish? Can we also um come back to this topic because there were like a few things and a few shows that you mentioned that I really want to touch upon, like what you were mentioning about Nickelodeon and how they had so many crossovers and how they had the um how the characters and how they kind of like aged mm. over the times. I really want to talk more about that. Mm. So I want mm. to know, could we touch back on that sometime? Yeah, matter of fact, we we um well uh yeah we can but I was saying we are we may be doing a side podcast later on this week as well a smaller one that is going to be mostly about that topic but okay the topic I wanted to get into today is uh how much are accolades really worth today and the reason I ask this question is because accolades are what we use to measure 
one of the things we use to measure success and how we make people stand out. But if an accolade is cheapened or if the perception of that accolade is still the same, yet the measures to obtain it, as far as difficulty and all that stuff goes, if the methods used to obtain it sort of is on steroids or makes it easier, can we really say that that accolade is worth the same or the person who has the accolade, can we put them in that box or that status? And so today I'm going to like throw out a few numbers here and talk about certain things as they relate. So recently, um, Kendrick Lamar has won the Pulitzer Prize. And the Pulitzer Prize is an honor, right? It's a great achievement. It's a great achievement. And to see, you know, him win that is awesome. The reason why it's such a big deal that Kendrick Lamar's won this Pulitzer Prize, and it's for his album, Damn, uh, by the way, his album called Damn. The reason why it's such a big deal is because he's the first rapper to win that. You know, the Pulitzer Prize, I forget what year it was, but they extended it to music. And so when if when he's the first rapper to win it, not only is he the first rapper to win it, but he's the first artist outside of classical and jazz music to win the Pulitzer Prize. And that's a big deal. No artist has done that. And, you know, for him to be the first is says something that's historic. But. I asked myself, I often ask myself, what is the motive or what was the reasoning behind giving him this particular accolade this year? Not to say that he doesn't deserve it, he doesn't deserve any award, but what is the reasoning behind giving him this award or what is what is the underlying motive? And the reason I ask this is because for them to do it this time, I asked myself, did they do it for the right reason? The Pulitzer Prize in the age of the internet. I don't think people pay attention to it as much. And so when you have hot or trending artists or, you know, successful artists winning things like this, I think it puts the Pulitzer Prize up. So that's my perception of it. That may not be certain people's perception of it. And certainly I have a level of I think maybe that comes from a slight level of cynicism. But these are sort of the things that I ask myself that I put in perspective. Now, recently also, we have other artists with accolades. So Drake, he was the first artist to replace himself at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with both of his songs debuting at number one, his new single, and then that replaced God's Plan. And also, he joined the Beatles, 50 Cent and Justin Bieber as the only artist to have three songs in the top five out of the Hot 100 simultaneously. And he's also the 13th overall act to replace himself on the Hot 100 since, you know, Justin Bieber in 2017. These are some pretty, you know, record-breaking things. This is record-breaking stuff. And this is in the era of streaming. The reason why I bring it up being in the era of streaming is for the fact that Album sales used to determine the Billboard 100, which they still do, but they put into account streaming. More people stream than they do than they do purchase albums now. And so if you can guarantee a set number of streams, you can guarantee certain, you know, spots. And Drake is one of the most, if not the most, one of the most streamed artists today, period. So it's easy for him to win those kind of accolades still impressive though then you have cardi b she broke the streaming record this week she broke taylor swift's previous album music streaming record which she had a hundred million streams you know for her album invasion of privacy back in january she was the first to have three to have three top to be to have three hot 100 songs and singles in the top 10 and of course Last year, she was the first female rapper to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 since Lauryn Hill, which was 17 years before that. And so now I'm sort of going to get into uh, the other aspect of that. Uh, one of those songs that Cardi B did was called Motorsport. Probably all of you, a lot of you know. Motorsport had a particular uh, streaming hack that it used. Which is also another one that, uh, which is the same streaming hack that a rapper called Post Malone used. 
what his record label Rockstar used, which is basically they loop ver they loop the chorus version of their song on YouTube, and so the streaming counts in its uh, assessment of the Billboard Hot 100. So all the streams that they had on YouTube every time that they played that song with the chorus looping, it counted as a single stream. So that basically inflated their single to the Billboard 100. That's how Post Malone's gotten to the top. And that's how Cardi B's song got up. And this was back in December. And so Lee Arcorn, who's over YouTube, they closed that and that's done. And so you have, you know, when you have things like this, of course, her having accolades is a good thing. But how she obtained those accolades, uh, does that cheapen or does that cheapen the accolade itself? And so that's sort of the question that I'm asking here today. So what do you guys think? Okay, now, when you were um, talking, you didn't actually give a definition of accolade. So accolade is? As it states, an accolade is an award or privilege granted as a special honor or as an acknowledgement of merit. So, right, what do you guys I'll think of that? Does it cheapen the does it cheapen these awards or achievements? I'll let Vanessa go first. I was that. I was about to ask you to go first because I wanted to hear what you had to say first. Okay. Um. Well, hmm. The eyes of success change depending on what era we're in. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means, which I know YouTube probably has, have probably surmised in a way what that means, the ability to gain success changes. So that means that the rules change as well, mm-hmm. even if subtly. I don't, I think it, what I think topic, is, huh? yes, I, I think that it doesn't cheapen it, but I still think that it doesn't make it as pertinent because the the problem is that during the yester during yesteryear when we didn't have or when artists didn't really have those abilities to do that then that meant that the install base would be smaller mm-hmm. so <laughs> so the amount of of resources that artists now have at their disposal it raises the the glass ceiling to where more people can participate in it. So what I think is that I think it's it's really more of of the hey because so many people are getting access to things, so many people are getting access to basic uh, technology in terms of especially musical artistry, but um, the other types of digital art forms. I think that for you to be able to obtain a certain level of success, even though you have millions upon millions of, of, of other competition, that is impressive. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, it's easier to utilize that same um, equipment or, or, or those same resources than this. So even though it's harder for you to be successful, look at us. Look at how um, if if this was let's say two or three years ago, I, we really probably wouldn't be able to record this video, record this podcast. So what I'm saying is that, but keep in mind we have millions to millions of other competition that we are competing with, mm-hmm. or not competition, but uh, of peers. So for us to obtain that level of of success that let's say other uh youtube channels or organizations or internet-based organizations it would be more impressive because of the amount of competition even though it becomes easier for you to use the resources that you're given so i don't think it boggles it down but i also think that i put to you this, this way do you blame the person for hacking or cheating when the game itself is flawed that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. <laughs> when when the game itself is flawed do, do you blame um what was it the super mario brothers and even though 
Now, even though this is a video game, this is part of you thinking. The, the infamous Super Mario Brothers um, uh, glitch style technique is on one of the, the levels, or one of the ending of the levels, when you're jumping up towards the flagpole, there is a Koopa, uh, you know, who's walking towards Mario. There's actually a, a, um, a glitch where you jump on top of the Koopa and kill it, and you repeatedly jump on the shell by putting it within a corner of a specific step of that stage, so you can basically get infinite lives. You can basically get as many lives as you want to, as many times as Mario keeps jumping on that shell. And this, and this particular uh, glitch was so popular that Nintendo has put this in numerous amounts of their Super Mario Brothers games. A lot of people may say, well, a lot of people used to say, oh, hey, well, back then, things like that were wrong, you're cheating. But nowadays, that particular glitch is so legendary in gaming that a lot of people don't consider it a cheat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's considered to be part of the game. So, what I'm saying is that even if it's not as much of of an aspect of hard work as as a lot of people would, would like for it to be, even though it doesn't take as much talent or artistry to do what she did, the fact that she was smart enough to even use that resource or her producers or whoever helped her or helped guide her shows how I would say internet savvy or how technologically savvy that the person is. But I'm finished. So it's a way of it's a way of like advancing also so like uh you can basically it's a it's an advantage. It's an advantage. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Diamante was saying, like it makes it all, it makes it makes sense because they're using they're using the internet now as a way of advancing, as a way of reaching reaching to higher heights, and they're not actually well, they some people may see it as cheating, but it's really just an opportunity to advance, and it's just a way of taking advantage of the material that you already have, like what she did, she just took advantage, like just took advantage of that opportunity and that's how she did it. And and I don't really I don't really say that it kind of dials down or she doesn't really deserve it because she does. I mean she still worked hard, right? Yeah, I'm not saying that she doesn't deserve the award. The question is does it does it make the award does it cheapen the award itself? I don't think so. Okay. Um, like, like I gave, um, it was, I gave more of a objective standpoint on it, but I still basically gave two, two, two perspectives. Just like bodybuilding, there are two types of, of main bodybuilding categories. There are the natural bodybuilders, which, you know, the natural bodybuilders are, are the men who do not use steroids or oils or things to artificially enhance themselves. So natural bodybuilders are basically as far as you can get with eating regular food, with taking regular vitamins, without getting illegal or external um, methods to artificially enhance your body. But, uh, natural bodybuilding is as far as a human can actually go. Then there's the other side of bodybuilding, which is the more popular side. The Bane uh, Venom. Right, the Bane Venom, the steroids, the synthol, <laughs> the this, the that. That category, that, that category of, of bodybuilding is use whatever you possibly can to get to a bigger size, to get to a better physique. Even if it kills you, even if it may give you a heart attack, even if, if it may give you a blood infection. Use whatever you possibly can to get into to that large venom vein style size. But now that's cheating. So, right. No, but keep in mind, in that competition, a lot of people, especially within that, that realm of competition, they promote it in a, in a way. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's promoted in a way. That's why I that's why I say most bodybuilders separate the two. Most bodybuilders separate the two. Most people in that Type of competition, they separated from 
the quote unquote cheating in the quote unquote natural aspect of it. And that's kind of the, the whole thing. I think to so people can have a more objective opinion, I think that we should separate it. We should should, should separate it from based off of, hey, do people use this underhand tactic? Or hey, do people not use this tactic? Hey, is this based more off of popularity or this based more off of quality? Mm-hmm. Is this based during the trend at the time? Is this not based during the trend at the time? I think that if people remain more objective, we can see it from a more artistic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And and that's really what my opinion is on that. If we remain more objective, then if we try by separating aspects of the culture, like I saw a man, um, I saw one of his video, and I may have him on as a guest star soon, but he basically said, um, uh, what, what was her name? Even though I don't, I think I've never actually heard one of her songs. I mean, a lot of modern musicians I don't listen to, but she, um, I think, uh, the man, he is a big, uh, hip hop head, right? Mm-hmm. He said he, he loves B Car no, Cardi B. He loves Cardi B, but the man has also said that he loves Cardi B for what she's doing, for her to be a woman of color, for her to achieve what she has achieved, which especially from her turning her life around from whatever she was doing beforehand. Yes, and now a lot of positive stuff. Man. Right, right. She represents a lot of positive things, but the man has also said no matter all of that, he does not consider her a rapper. He does not, he, he considers her a musical Entertain or really just entertainer, period. He considers her a a musical entertainer, a a person who who strategically is able to use her social pertinence to to, to gain a higher state in artistry. But he doesn't consider her a rapper because of he he doesn't consider her lyrics or her lyricism to be even subpar. But Keep in mind, the man still gave her 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 um her accolades for doing what she was doing, especially for her her lifestyle. You used to be so. What I'm saying is, too many times we try to put everything within one bowl when it should be separated in Tupperware. Mm-hmm. You you said a lot of what I actually was going to say. Ah. Uh, Dr. Clark apologizes. Very person. It is. It is okay. <laughs> <laughs> but finish. Okay. 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 But but and yeah. So that and that's not my whole point. I support anyone who uses a platform, any platform, to help their status in life, especially if it's doing something positive. Remember, that's what we're doing. We're using multiple platforms, multiple techniques to raise our status and spread positivity to help other people. I, I've had people um, behind the scenes contact me and tell me how much they enjoyed. Um, uh, I remember it, it was the the post you made last year concerning um, Redman. I think I think it was last year. Mm-hmm. Or, or it, it was even though it was just a a, a quick, fun miniature article about Redman's first album. Someone actually contacted me, which I forgot to tell you about. I deleted the message. No, I was I, about to say, I've never heard about yeah, that one. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry, which, which <laughs> I forgot to tell you about it. But, but, but this man, he actually said he liked it. Uh, he said he very much liked liked it. Uh, that that you covered that because he's a Redman fan. I've had people to contact me about a few things concerning our, our organization, just the fact that we're doing something positive and we're trying to raise our status in life and trying to build a brand from it has really, really impressed people. So in terms of the overall topic, be it Kendrick Lamar winning his prize, that is amazing for free, for a young black man, especially at his age. I think he's still in his 20s, right? Yeah. For him to do what he has done, and no matter the amount of adversity, it's still good. Yeah, now that that that, just, that obtaining that is a is a is a tremendous feat. Well, no, mm-hmm. no doubt, especially being the first person to do that. Mm-hmm. So 
And that's my entire point. We also have to examine, even if we don't get accolades, even even if we don't get get named off. Uh, like I tell you frequently, and me and Derek have talked about this, even me and Vanessa have talked about this. I call James Brown the greatest of all time. Even if, if someone doesn't consider him a greatest of all time, most music heads of any people who love music as a whole, especially black music, if they know anything about the basis of music, James Brown has come up in a conversation with them before or in some type of listening of one of the greatest. Because one simple thing, James Brown is the most sampled artist of all time, which is credited for, for Derek to being the first person in his organization to state that. He, his influence is still being heard from his artistry, from, from, from his social and, and, and media-based appearances, from Over his fashion. 17,000 samples from his music guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From... From his, his his artistry, Michael Jackson, who's considered to be the greatest entertainer of all time, Michael Jackson's basis of his style was based off of guess who? Mm -hmm. James Brown. James Brown. So, and that's the point. James Brown, especially for hip hop, which is probably I think the the most popular um, genre of music today overall. James Brown, every hip hop artist that I guarantee that anyone listens to has at least two James Brown samples in their song. Even even if they're artists that are known for not even really using samples, they probably have at least once or twice sampled James Brown. Uh, James, like I said, his fashion, his media appearances. James Brown single handedly wrote the rule book of what a black artist is supposed to be. He wrote that rule book. And he broke boundaries. That's why he's called the hardest working man in show business. Or he was called that. Because James Brown tried to break barriers in any way that he possibly could. And that's why I say he's the greatest of all time. Not necessarily because of uh oh his dance even though his even his dancing is is highly revolutionary for a music entertainer, but James Brown's influence is arguably the most influential artist on modern music as a whole now. Because you can't go anywhere without seeing some aspect of James Brown in whatever musical genre that you listen to. Mm -hmm. Which I'm going to, to do a separate video on J James Brown later for everyone. But yes, I'm finished with what I was saying. I'm off my theoretical soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, you said a good amount of what I was going to say. But really, the main thing that I was going to say was, um, I think that there should be two lanes in which we evaluate people, the methods in which people, you know, use things to get these awards. And I think that that should sort of separate the two. Of course, like, I wasn't here to say that any of them didn't deserve their awards. It's I was just questioning the means by which people award, you know, give these awards out. You know, that that was really the that was really the thing. And so, you know, like I said, I asked myself if Kendrick Lamar willing to Pulitzer Prize, if it was something that the Pulitzer Prize said, well, maybe we should change it up a little bit, make it more current. So, you know, we can start making a lot more people pay more attention to the Pulitzer Prize again. With Cardi B, I asked myself this question months ago, months, months ago. Did, does um her using this streaming hack, do I consider that cheating when the company when these companies pay these journalists and different people to basically cover or hinder other artists including these other artists when these companies are basically in marketing and bidding wars to get certain artists exposure that makes it that already makes it difficult for some artists to achieve success over others and so does that cheap does that cheapen that you know what I mean? And so I, I asked myself these questions and the conclusion I came to is not necessarily, not necessarily. I mean, it calls into question how we evaluate an achievement and where, where we place these achievements at because achievements are still achievements, but it's about how we evaluate these achievements that are important, that separates, uh, 
different counterparts from each other. And so that's basically all I have to say on that. Um, and and what you have said uh, <laughs> is a very, very loaded topic. Great topic. Uh, Vanessa, yeah. do you have anything? No more comments. All right. Well, thank all of you guys for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I would love to see you guys comment about your opinions down below. Um, of course, like, share, and subscribe, and definitely look at a lot more of our content. You know, we're trying to keep a regular schedule of putting more content out in the future. And definitely, please give us some feedback. You know, anything we can do to improve our methods or any topics or anything you would like to see, definitely give us that. Um, Dr. Clark, is there any other things you want to announce or anything else you want to make known that you have to say? Okay. Uh, everyone, please respect yourselves. Yes. That's always good. Don't disrespect young men and young ladies. That comes from Dr. Clark directly. But no, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, please, again, follow us on Facebook um, or join our Facebook group, Dr. Clark's Interns. Uh, please follow our Instagram page. We will be looking into expanding. We may even, we, we may even open up a Snapchat. A Snapchat or chat snap, whatever it's called, Snapchat. a a a Snapchat um or uh page specifically for a group or especially concerning when we're going to create content. So and like like I've said before, if anyone um <laughs> the the more we because we base what we do off of support, especially now this early in, into our venture. So if you want to see more, especially at a more regular basis, then show us that but like i said we we will we never ask for money we just ask for support uh we just ask for likes shares on, on all platforms like shares follows even even just comments even messaging one of us or even commenting on on um one of our videos or posts or whatever shows support to us it helps us gauge how we're going to do what we're going to do uh, and for announcements, um, again, uh, we have other videos that will be coming to the channel that are not a podcast, but that are really more of an extension of our work that we do on Facebook and Instagram for people who don't like to read, which I know that is probably a good sizable amount of our readers. For our different biographies and different posts and, and topics that we do, we are currently transitioning most of those, at least, hopefully to YouTube for you to listen to um, through video format. So um, does anyone else have any announcements or anything to say or state? Vanessa? Oh, no, I don't have anything. All right. As the kids say, please be that hot fire. No one says no that. No one says that. They should. No, no. they really should. They should. Stay ill kids stay ill by not taking medicine ah dr clark <laughs> uh, all right you guys have a good one all right bye bye